Hey y'all, this is Ksenia Murray, and you're listening to Twisted Pulp Radio Hour on Anchor. Hi, this is Jerry Elif. I play Tiffany Teagarden on Twisted Pulp Radio Hour. Please support your local community radio station. Without you as listeners, we couldn't air our show on KKRN 88.5 FM. Thank you. Warning, this material is for mature audiences. This is the Twisted Pulp Radio Hour. The Ninth Ninth Tower Tower Productions. Productions. What are you doing to the radio station console? We're only broadcasting at half, Doctor. Something isn't right. I personally fiddled with the console. Fiddled is right. You also diddled it. (gasps) How dare you! Look at these wires. You've crossed so many of them, it looks like a spider web. Don't touch them! like that pigeon you barbecued yesterday. <laughs> this is Pulp Theater, starring the Narada Radio Company. Adapted from the best pulp in the world, welcome to Pulp Theater! Starring the Narada Radio Company. Tonight, The Eyes of Thar by Henry Kuttner. With a special guest introduction by Julia Morizawa. Good evening. 
This is Julia Morizawa, aka Dr. Bright of the Bright Sessions Audio Drama Podcast, and fighter pilot Arena Cartades from the upcoming sci fi series Blade of Honor. I've been asked by Pete to introduce tonight's episode of Pulpery Theater. Tonight, we travel to the planet Mars. Mars, as we all know, is a desert planet, scorching hot and dry as dust. Its inhabitants are constantly warring against each other over the smallest trickle of water. Decades ago, in the ancient Clanvar region, there once lived a colony of settlers from Earth, but the lack of water and the hot climate forced them out in search of more favorable locales. Our tale for tonight concerns one particular Earthman, Samuel Dantan, who was brought to Mars as an infant on a Pioneer-class space liner by his parents. Dantan, who has no memory of Earth, will be telling us his story. But first, here's Christy to tell you a little more. Dantan is an outlaw, an outlaw on the run. Pursued by Martians of the Red Helm tribe, Dantan hopes against hope that he can lose the forces of his longtime enemy in the ruins and desert of the ancient region of Clanbar. Dantan now rests for a moment, flattening himself against a tower-like outcropping of red rock that stretches skyward, that for a moment seems to pierce the rising moon of Phobos, one of the two eyes of Thar in Clanbar mythology. Dantan's canteen is empty, and he cannot remember the last time he tasted water. His pursuers are still some distance away, and he knows they will find him. But perhaps he can find a bit of that precious water first, with a little help from the light of the Eyes of Thar. The old shaman's words come back to me at times like this. I'm staring around, taking stock of resources, all alone when his voice wells up in my memory. You are never alone in Clanvar. The living shadows are all around you. They cannot help, but they watch, and their pride must not be humbled. No, you are never alone in Clanvar. The old man had taken me in when I was a boy, during one of the great Martian droughts, made me his godson, tried to teach me the scraps of forgotten knowledge of the past, the glorious days of Martian destiny, when bright towers had shot their slender fingers up, triumphantly, to the eyes of Thar. It was always this way when I returned to Clanvar. Memories would overtake me when I least expected it. Memories of the shaman, Antonia's rituals, old books, and even older stories, raids by the Red Helm tribe, and a girl. One day there was a raid, and the girl was killed. This was Mars, though. People died every day and would continue to die. But to me, this one death mattered very much. That was a long time ago. Many men had died since then, and their blood was red upon my hands. Whenever I returned to Clanvar, I felt again the need to kill, to hunt the Red Helm men. The love of my youth was lost forever, but the hate, the hate was still there. I couldn't shed enough Red Helm blood to satisfy the hate, and now they were hunting me. What's that? The wind changed. The shaman taught me that sometimes the old canyons hide lost rivers, constantly changing their courses as Mars crumbled and such watercourses might be traced by sound. Keep moving, Dantan. 
water at the end of it. The going's easier thanks to the light from Phobos, and Deimos, the second eye of Thar, will rise soon enough. Half a mile. Here's an arroyo, and the bottom's about 50 feet down. Walls look easy enough to climb down. How safe is it? Anyone around? By Kezar, I can smell the water. Can't see it, but the smell of it is maddening. Down you go, Dantan, and once you find it, make sure the coast is clear before you drink. Here's the reason for the diverted stream. A landslide. And thank Thar for his eye. Phobos is higher in the sky now, and the going is easier. Wait a minute. What on Mars is that? Some dome-shaped thing rising from the dry stream bed. The old race of Klanvar, centuries ago, had built objects of some substance that had not survived. Yet this dome was obviously ancient corroded and pitted, and had the unmistakable dull sheen of alloy steel. It must be an alloy, or else it wouldn't have survived the elements all these years. I begin scraping the dirt away from the dome, where it meets the surface. As the caked earth falls away, I discover the outline of an oval door. It has a handle of some sort that looks fixed in its socket with dirt. If I can open it, it could lead to a resting place, somewhere to hide from the Red Helms for a while, or to find a weapon to use against them. Some water from the brook, and this sharp stone might help me break it loose. Ah, ah, there. That might do it. Now. Kazar's bones, this thing is stuck fast. Brace yourself, Dantana, try again. Was that footsteps? <laughs> no. Just the sound of my blood beating between my temples. <sighs> Once more then, and... <sighs> it moved! More! More! Yes, Dantan, you've done it! <sighs> oh, the door is opening, swinging inward. Oh, look at that shaft, like a long tube. The bottom must be 30 feet below. No corrosion on the inside from what I can see. There are pegs at regular intervals, so there's my ladder. But do I dare go down? The sharp sound of the wind sighing down the canyon reminds me of the red helms on my track. Without another thought, I lower myself into the shaft, testing the pegs doubtfully at first, before I let my full weight come down but they hold. After a quick reconnoiter of the canyon above, I duck down again and push the door back up into place. 
There is an interior lock, and after a few moments I am able to manipulate it. There might be danger below, but I knew for certain that danger waited for me above, coming after me among the twisting canyons. So far, inside this tube, things were satisfactory. I was safe temporarily from the Red Helms, provided I didn't suffocate. Breathing was easy enough so far, although I could see no air intake. I would worry about lack of air when the need arose. There might be other things to worry about at the bottom of the shaft. Another door at the bottom yields easily and opens onto a large, well-lighted room, empty except for some kind of large machine standing against the far wall. The room is a perfect cube, more like a large chamber, cut from the living rock of Mars, lined from floor to ceiling with the same alloy steel that had constructed the vertical shaft I had just descended. How long has this room been here? Who built it, I wonder? I can't even guess to what purpose. What's that oval screen for on that wall over a... Um, a control board, I suppose you'd call it. And what are these other machines? I've never seen anything like them. The screen is so black, almost dead black, and it... Sansel. What's that? Sansel! Kotor Chung! Sansel! Stan! A woman's voice, speaking in a tongue that scarcely a dozen living men could understand. An entire great race had spoken at once, but only the shamans remembered it now, and the shamans were few. My godfather had been one of them, and he had taught me the rituals, and I remembered the slurring syllables of the language of ancient Klanvar, and I could comprehend what this proud woman's voice was saying. Sanfel? Sanfel? Have you returned? Sanfel, answer! Here was something I could not understand, and I didn't like it. My body tensed like an animal's, ready to attack. Only my eyes moved, raking the room for the source of the voice and for some kind of weapon I could use when I found it. The voice came again, and it seemed to issue from the black oval screen, and once again, it spoke in the tongue of the ancient Martian race. Sanfel, I am not accustomed to waiting. If you hear me speak, and speak quickly, for the time of peril comes close now, my enemy is strong. <clears throat> Can you hear me? You are not Sanfel. Who are you, Martian? I am no Martian. I am of Earthblood, and I do not know the Sanfel. Then how did you get into Sanfell's place? What are you doing there? Sanfell built his laboratory in a secret location. It was hidden well enough. Maybe for a thousand years, or ten thousand for all I know. The door has been buried under a stream. There's no water there. Sanfell's home is on a mountain, and his laboratory is built underground. I think you lie. I think you are an enemy. When I heard the signal summoning me, I came swiftly, wondering why Sanfell had delayed so long. I must find him, stranger. I must. If you are no enemy, bring me Sanfell. It struck me suddenly that this speaker, this woman, must be, might be, insane. Speaking from some mysterious place behind the screen, in a language dead a thousand years, calling upon a man who must be long dead too, if anyone could judge by the length of time this room had lain buried. If I could bring you Sanfell, I would. But there's no one here except me. This room has been buried a long time, and... And no one has spoken the tongue of Klanvar for many centuries, if that was your Sanfell's language. If Sanfell had spoken Klanvarish, then he must have died long ago. And the speaker behind the screen, she who had known Sanfell, yet spoke in a young, sweet, light voice that was beginning to sound, I thought, familiar. And I wondered if I could be insane too. I had not realized that even time might be different between Sanfell's world and mine. The... The space-time continua. Yes, a day in my world might well be an age in yours. 
Time is elastic. In Ja, I thought only a few friends had passed. But on Mars, centuries? Tens of centuries. If Sanfel lived in old Klanvar, his people are scarcely a memory now, and Mars is dying. You, you're speaking from another world? From another universe, yes. A universe very different from yours. It was only through Sanfel that I had made contact, until now. What is your name? Dantan. Samuel Dantan. Not a Martian name. You are from Earth, you say? What is that? Another planet. Uh, nearer the sun than Mars. We have no planets and no suns in Ja. This is a different universe indeed. So different that I find it hard to imagine what your world must be like. The voice trailed off, and in the ensuing silence, I realized that it was a voice I knew. I was certain of it, and the certainty frightened me. When a man in the Martian desert begins to see or hear impossibilities, he has reason to be frightened. I said nothing, hoping that the voice I had heard had just been my imagination. But eventually... Are... are you still there? Yes, I am here. I was thinking, Dantan. I need help. I need it desperately. I wonder, has Sanfeld's laboratory changed? Does the machine still stand? But it must, or I could not speak to you now. If the other things work, there may be a chance. Listen... I may have a use for you. Do you see a red lever marked with the Kranvarish symbol for sight? I see it. Push the lever forward. There is no harm in that, if you are careful. We can then see each other, that is all. But be certain that you do not touch the lever marked door. But wait! Yes, I haven't touched anything yet. I am forgetting. There is danger if you are not protected from... Uh, from a certain vibration you might see here. This is a different universe, and your Martian physical laws do not hold well between our worlds. Vibration, light, other things might harm you. There should be armor in Sansa's laboratory. Find it. Armor? Where? Cabinet in the corner over there. What kind of armor could she mean? Careful now, and... Inside the cabinet hung a suit of something. Space armor? made of flexible stuff that would hold up fairly well under hand-to-hand combat. I put it on, and it was skin-tight, form-fitting. I couldn't help but think of how time had stood still in this room, of the eons that had passed since the last man had worn this armor. There was a helmet, too. I put that on, and my vision was oddly distorted by the transparent lens. The whole room's appearance changed slightly. I decided it must be polarized, but, but that alone couldn't account for the strange dimming and warping that I was experiencing. Already? Then push the switch. Ah! The light! Too bright! No! I looked once at her and closed my eyes. My heart jumped and I felt a nerve twitch in my face. Unconsciously, I whispered a name. Marcia. I'd hesitated before throwing that switch because I was about to step into unknown territory, and that was perilous business. My thoughts had briefly gone back to the Red Helm, scouring the canyon above for me, and I'd quieted my uneasy mind with the thought that, perhaps, some weapon from the world of this voice might be acquired to use against them later. But I'd also known that, weapon or no weapon, danger or not, I had to see the face behind that sweet, familiar, imperious voice. 
And now I had, and I knew that this must be an illusion, for in a world as different as Ja, there would be no humanoid creatures, and certainly there would be no human who wore the same face and spoke in the same voice as the girl I remembered. Aside from the girl herself, there was nothing to see. The screen was blank except for vague shapes, outlines really. I thought it must be the helmet filtering out more than just light. Beyond this girl, I sensed, stretched the world of Ja, but all I could see were the shifting, swirling colors of the background. She looked down at me from the screen without expression. Obviously, the sight of me had not affected her the same way the sight of her had me. Her voice was almost unbearably familiar, a voice sounding from the silence of death over many chilly years. Dantan. Samuel Dantan. Hearthly language is as harsh as the clan bar I learned from Sanfel. My name is Kiana. Does it sound strange to you? What do you want? What did you want with Sanfel? Help. A weapon. Sanfel had promised me a weapon. He was working very hard to make one, risking much. And now time has eaten him up. This strange, capricious time that varies so much between your world and mine. To me, it was only yesterday. And I still need that weapon. Ha! Then I'm the wrong man. I have no weapon. What I do have are men tracking me down right now to kill me. I found myself unable to control my brusque tone when speaking with the girl. I don't think she even noticed, but I found myself hot with jealousy of Sanfel, that unknown and long-dead Martian. She brought her face closer to the screen and gave a little gesture with her hand. Can you escape? You are well hidden here, you know. The laboratory door can be locked at the top of the shaft. I know. I locked it. But there's no food or water here. No, if I had any weapons, I wouldn't be here now. Would you not? Sanfel once told me that an old clan bard they had a saying that none could hide from his destiny. What? I stared at her, the unasked questions evident, I am sure, on my face. Did she mean herself? That same face and voice and body so cruelly come back from death to reawaken the old grief? Did she know whose likeness she wore, or could it be only my imagination after all? For Sanfel had known her too, and if Sanfel had died as long ago, as I think he'd died. I forced the question to remain unasked, muttering only, Yes, I remember. A man's destiny is the cloak he wears on his journey. It surrounds him night and day, so that he cannot hide himself from it. Dantan, my world is too different to offer you any shelter. Though I suppose you could enter it for a little while, in that protective armor that Sanfel made. But not to stay. We each spring from soil too alien to one another's worlds. Even this communication is not easy. And there is no safety here in Ja now either, now that Sanfel has failed me. I... I'd help you if I could. I said these words with difficulty, forcing myself to remember that, in spite of how she looked, how she sounded, that this girl was a stranger. Tell me what's wrong. I have an enemy. One of a lower race. And he... It... There is no word. Has cut me off from my people in a part of Ja that is... Well, 
dangerous. I can't describe to you the conditions here. We have no common terms to use in speaking of them. But there is great danger, and the enemy is coming closer, and I am alone. If there were another of my people here to divide the peril, I think we could destroy him. This creature has a strange weapon of his own, a weapon powerful enough to defeat me alone, but not so if two of my race stood against it. I... I cannot describe it, nor its strange power. I had hoped Sanfell could build a weapon to counter its effects long enough to kill the creature, but time would not let him do it. The teeth of time have ground him into dust, just as my enemy's weapon will grind me soon. <sighs> if I could get you a gun, a force ray? What is that? I described to Kiana the weapons available on Mars. By the time I finished, her smile was scornful, and so was her tone. We of Ja have passed beyond the use of missile weapons, even such missiles as bullets or rays. Nor could they touch my enemy. No, we can destroy in ways that require no, no beams, no explosives. No, Dantan, we have no common ground. It is a pity that so much time has passed between Sansel and me, but pass it did, and I am helpless now, and the enemy will be upon me very soon. I looked up at the girl and clenched my jaw in frustration. Being unable to help her was almost intolerable. It had been bad enough the first time. To learn long afterward that she had died at enemy hands while I was too far away to protect her. But to see it all take place again, before my very eyes. I reached for a lever-marked door in the ancient language of Klanvar. There must be a way! Wait! What would happen? The door would open. I could enter your world and you mine. Why can't you leave then and, and wait until it's safe to come back? I have tried that. It will never be safe. The enemy waited too. No. It must come, in the end, to a battle, and I shall not win that fight. I shall not see my own people, nor my own land again. I did hope when I heard Sansel's signal sound again. I know you would help me if you could, Dantan, but there is nothing to be done now. I'll come in. Maybe there's something I could do. You could not touch him. Even now there's danger. He was very close when I heard that signal. This is his territory. When I heard the bell and thought Sansel had returned with a weapon for me, I dared greatly in coming here. The enemy is coming. Turn off the screen, Dantan. And goodbye. No, wait! But she shook her head sadly and turned away, her thin robe swirling, moving off like a pale shadow into the dim, shadowless emptiness of the background. I stood watching helplessly, feeling all the old despair wash over me a second time as the girl I loved went alone into danger I could not share. Kiana grew smaller and smaller in the screen, eclipsed occasionally by objects I could almost, but not quite, see. Trees? Rocks? So much was filtered out by the strange helmet I was wearing. Kiana became a black dot in the distance, but I felt a cord stretching between us, pulling thinner and thinner as she receded into danger. It was unbearable to think this cord might break a second time. Yeah. What the hell was that? Who? I strained my eyes desperately, trying to see what had just made that cry for Kiana. It had sounded like a sleepy child calling for its mother, but Kiana had not mentioned any children. 
The viewing screen was completely white now, with wisps of vapor drifting across, but then... It was huge and scaled and terrible. Human, but not human. Tailed, but not a beast. Intelligent, but with a look of evil. I'm forever grateful for my helmet, because it prevented me from seeing it too clearly. But it also, I felt, translated as much as it filtered. Perhaps the creature didn't look precisely as it appeared to me on the screen, but it was easy to believe that it had originated on the alien soil of Ja. I'd never seen anything like it on any of the worlds I knew. It was hideous, and everything about it made my hackles bristle. The creature carried a coil of brightly colored tubing slung over one grotesque shoulder, and its monstrous head swung side to side as it paced forward into the screen. Abruptly it paused. Had it sensed the girl's presence somewhere in hiding? One claw-like hand reached up to its shoulder for the coil of tubing. Each call to Kiana had resulted in silence. Now it turned away from the screen and, moving with smooth speed, vanished into the clouds of the background as the girl had vanished. For an eternity, I watched the white emptiness, trying to keep myself from trembling. Kiana! He! It's! Found her! She's running, but it's closing fast. Now it's unslinging the coil from its shoulder. Good girl! That zigzag pattern will keep him from getting a good aim. What the hell? That was like a bolt of blue lightning shooting from the end of the coil. It's caught Kiana, and Kezar's bones. She's completely engulfed in it. It was more than I could bear, the look of despair on Kiana's face as the creature's blind lightning caught her in a cone of expanding, shifting brilliance. Almost without thinking, my hand shot out and struck the lever marked door, and the veil that had masked the screen was gone. I vaulted up over its low threshold, not seeing anything but the face and terror of Kiana. But, I confess it now, it was not Kiana's name I called out as I left. Magia! Where are you? I can't see you because of the weird light of your world, but... But I can see you, you ugly beast. Why don't you try me on for size, friend? Or would you rather have a defenseless girl as your victim? Is that weird tubing all you've got? I'll bet I could... Ah! The monster turned the weapon toward me, and I was suddenly, excruciatingly, caught up in a cone of nearly tangible light. Its pile driver punch knocked the breath from my body, and I squeezed my eyes tight as I tried to fight against the steady stream of current. I sensed Kiana beside me, caught up in the same dreadful stream, and beyond the source of the light, through my slitted eyes, the enemy stood in stark, inhuman silhouette. Inside the cone of light, cold and heat attacked me simultaneously, shook me hard. The light from the enemy's weapon couldn't be found in my world or anywhere in my universe, and it had properties that light should not have. It drained me, left me bare, empty, a hollow shell, and yet it filled me with floods of color that were not color, sounds that were not sounds, vibrations that were spawned in the shaking hells of worlds beyond imagination. I have no idea how long this lasted. It could have been years in Kiana's world, but soon the strange feelings began to subside, then to ebb, and then drop to an almost manageable pain. I suddenly saw Kiana, and she was no longer trapped in her own cone of light, but standing erect and facing the enemy, and from her eyes, I don't know what, something streamed. As the cone's power continued to wane, I felt myself weaken, 
felt my senses fade as the tide of dark horror mounted through my brain and covered me up with its blanketing immensity. Back in the laboratory, leaning against the wall and breathing in great shuddering drafts of air. I couldn't remember stumbling back through the door from Ja. I grew aware of another being's presence and looked to see Kiana standing beside me, here upon the Martian soil of the underground chamber. Her lovely face gazed upon mine quizzically as I fought to bring my breath, my heartbeat, back under control. After a few moments, I reached up for the clasp that fastened the helmet to my armor. No, Dantan. Do not do that. I had not known. I did not think this could be done. Another of my own race, yes. But you, from Mars. I would not have believed that you could stand up against the enemy for a moment, even with your armor. I'm from Earth, not Mars. Ha! <laughs> and I didn't stand long. Long enough. You see now what happened? We of Ja can destroy without weapons, using only the power inherent in our own bodies. Those like the enemy have a little of that power too, but they need special devices to amplify it. And so when you diverted the enemy's attention and forced him to divide his attack between us, the pressure on me was relieved and I could destroy him. But again, I would not have believed it possible. You're safe now? Yes, I can return. And you will? Of course. We are more alike than you had realized. That is true. But it is not the complete truth, Dantan. I love you, Kiana. The words came out unbidden, and as they did I noticed that I'd called her by her right name. Kiana said nothing in response. Neither of us moved as minutes ticked away silently. Then, as if she hadn't heard the last thing I'd said. Those who followed you are here. I have been listening to them for quite some time now. They are trying to break through the door at the top of the shaft. Kiana, stay here. Or let me go back to Ja with you. Don't shake your head. Why not? You could not live there without your armor. Then stay. Ah, this damned helmet. Let me take it off. See you properly. Wait. Do not. Why not? Follow me. Kiana stepped across the threshold of the shaft and began to swiftly climb the metal pegs toward the surface. As I followed her up, I could hear the hammering of the red helms on the door. Dantan, I am about to show you how different you and I are. How different our two worlds are. Watch, but be careful. Remain in the safety of the shaft. As the door slipped down and swung aside, I caught a single, swift glimpse of red helm heads dodging back to safety. They didn't know, of course, that I was unarmed. I reached up desperately, trying to haul Kiana back down, but she eluded my grasp and sprang lightly out of the shaft into the cool gray light of the Martian morning. Her warning to be careful was forgotten as I pulled myself up behind her. But before I was halfway out of the shaft, I stopped cold, for the red helms were falling. Kiana was merely standing there in the midst of them, but they were falling to the ground. I pulled myself up and out, and without looking at Kiana, went to the nearest body. I could find no mark upon it, yet the red helm was dead. All of them were simply from being in the presence of the girl. This is why you had to wear the armor. Your world and my world, they are so different. Oh, what are you doing? 
I'm trying to take you in my arms, but I can't feel you while I'm in this armor, and I can't kiss you with my helmet on. <sighs> you can't go back. We are of the same world, no matter what, no matter how. You're no stranger to me, Kiana. Dantan. Samuel. Do you think I do not know why you fought for me? Did you ever stop to wonder why Sanfel risked so much for me too? What are you saying? I don't... No, I, I don't want to hear... I deceived you, Dantan. I deceived Sanfel yesterday, a thousand years ago. I have no way of knowing how you see me. I don't know how Sanfel saw me. To each of you, because I needed your help, I wore the shape to which you owed the help the most. I could reach into your minds deeply enough for that. To mold a beloved face, a remembered body, for your eyes. My true shape is, well, different. You would not know it, and never will. But... You are a brave man, Samuel Dantan. Braver and stronger than I ever dreamed an alien could be. I wish... I wonder... Oh, let me go! Let me go! I had been holding her this entire time, in spite of not being able to feel much more than a vague sense of her presence, and she whirled out of my grasp now with sudden vehemence, turning her face away so I could not see her eyes. Without glancing my way again, she bent over the shaft, found the topmost pegs, and in a moment, was gone. I stood there listening. After the sound of her hands and feet on the rungs disappeared, I heard the muted sound of a bell from below, and it sounded as if it came from another world. I knew then that there was no longer anyone in that ancient laboratory beneath my feet. When I'd entered Kiana's world, I'd never really been able to see it. The light had been too blinding, and yet, in a subtle sense, it was not blinding to the eyes, but to the mind. But I could see now. What becomes of a man once he has fulfilled his destiny? If he is not dead, he simply exchanges his old cloak for a new one. I shut the door carefully and scraped soil over it. I didn't mark the spot. I looked up and saw, above the canyon wall, the first red rays of the rising sun. Using the sun as a guide, I set off walking toward the cavern where my air car was hidden. It was many miles away, but there was no one to stop me now. I did not look back. You have been listening to The Eyes of Thar, starring the Narada Radio Company. Featured in the cast, Pete Lutz as Dantan and the Shaman, and Christy Glick as Kiana, the Creature, and your announcer. The Eyes of Thar was originally published as a short story by Henry Kuttner and appeared in the fall 1944 issue of Planet Stories magazine. And now here's our producer and director, Pete Lutz. Thanks, Christy. Before I tell everybody about the next episode of Pulpery Theater, I need to give credit where credit is due. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Tom Rory Parsons. You may have heard his music in The King's Prerogative, Episode 6 of this season, and in Black Roses, Episode 2 of the season. This will make the third episode that Tom has composed music for, and we certainly hope it won't be the last. He's a genius when it comes to this sort of thing, and we really hope you enjoyed the music for this episode. 
Thanks must also go out to our guest producer, MJ Cogburn. MJ has been a producer for several years at Colonial Radio Theater and for her own series, Darker Projects, and we hear she's doing something for the gang at Audio Oblivious Productions, Austin Beach, and the rest of the uh, terrific guys there. Uh, I don't know what that is, but it's sure to be good. If you enjoyed the production values in this episode, it's all because of MJ, and we owe her a great debt of thanks. Uh, during our hiatus, she worked very hard in her spare time to um, put this together, and I think it's great, and I hope you do too. Okay, I discovered this wonderful story and first wrote the adaptation for The Eyes of Thar for possible inclusion in season two, but if you recall, I had to cut that season short. Then I'd had hopes of producing it as a bonus episode for season three, and the bulk of the voice recording was done in early 2016, but again, our plans went awry. Finally, a slot came available in season four, and so our little orphan episode found a home. We hope you enjoyed it and found it worth the wait. Next time on Pulpery Theater, we'll be reaching way back to the pulps of the 19th century and the most famous American pulp hack of that era, Edgar Allan Poe. We think you'll find that our new adaptation of The Cask of Amontillado is appropriately... chilling. <laughs> That's next time on Pulpery Theater, and until then, this is Pete Lutz reminding you to call me if your situation improves... And to keep your ears clean. One final big thank you to Julia Morizawa for introducing our episode. The Pulpery Theater theme was composed and performed by Mr. Rich Wentworth. Opening announcements by Gene Lutz and Rich Wentworth. The preceding production was sourced from materials in the public domain except where indicated. The audio play script and the production itself are original works and are the property of their creator and thus protected by copyright. This production was pre-recorded and mixed at 63 Audio, Corpus Christi, Texas. Remember, Pulpourri Theater is your source for the best in audio drama. This has been a 63 Audio production. Sixty Three Audio. This is Eileen Corpus, one of the members of the Narada Radio Company, here to tell you about the work of the Covering House, a nonprofit organization that helps minor girls who've been rescued from sex trafficking. The Covering House doesn't rescue these girls, but they do work with police and Homeland Security to help these girls who are rescued. The average age of a girl trapped in sex trafficking in the United States is just 13 years old. As you may imagine, the trauma these girls have experienced is devastating. So the Covering House gives these precious survivors a place to live and recover and find healing from their trauma. The girls have a beautiful residential home nestled in the woods at a private and secure location. They receive counseling and education and learn how to overcome their trauma through music, horticulture, and equine therapies. And in the process, they regain a little piece of their childhood. 
If you'd like to help these precious girls, please consider making a donation to The Covering House. Visit their website at thecoveringhouse.org. That's thecoveringhouse.org. This is Tiffany Teagarden. You're listening to Twisted Pulp Radio Hour on listener-supported KKRN Community Radio, 88.5 FM. Thank you for tuning in. It was 2.30 in the morning and Barry was still on GarageSale.com. Lily awoke, saw the quick flash of light on their darkened bedroom wall from the computer's monitor. She sat up, eyes barely in focus. Her blonde hair was matted to the left side of her face. Lily rubbed her eyes. Barry was shirtless. Lily saw mounds and mounds of hair on his back, each strand waving at her because of the central air working overtime on such a hot summer night. She watched him nod his head and began typing fast. Lily rose from the bed and stood. The strap from her nightgown slid from her shoulder and momentarily revealed her right breast. She coughed to get his attention, but Barry was caught up in something. She rolled her eyes and placed her breast back into her nightgown. "'What are you doing?' Lily said, annoyed by the small amount of attention from Barry. Barry jumped at the sound of her voice. "'Nothing!' he squeaked. He retrieved his man's voice and said again, "'Nothing, honey.' Lily walked over and peered over Barry's shoulders. "'Oh,' she said, disappointed. "'I thought I would catch you looking at porno or having an online affair like normal people.' She walked into the bathroom. He could hear running water in the toilet. Instead, she appeared again in the bedroom after a loud flush. I find you still on GarageSale.com, bidding on crap we don't need. It's not crap. Barry stretched his arms, bones cracking like incidental music from a scene in a movie. I'm a collector, Lily. Everything I buy is classy pop culture. Yeah, like Ernst Borgnine's underpants he wore in the movie Ice Station Zebra? Don't mock me. I did find a buyer for that item. Old Mr. Coleman down the street gave you five bucks for that item. So? He's a collector, too. Barry, he's a 75-year-old gay man who talks to a phonograph of Truman Capote. That's not normal? Lily stared at Barry for a moment. There's no getting through to you, is there? She wearily climbed back into bed. We have a garage full of stuff we can't use, will not use, and no interest in them other than you bought them from GarageSale.com. You will be an alone divorced weirdo trying to sell a comb once used by Danny DeVito for pennies to buy your next meal. I'm just warning you. She removed her nightgown and threw it to the floor. Now get in bed and make love to me and I won't divorce you. Barry's face fell. He sighed, turned off the computer. Okay, he said with the enthusiasm of a man about to be hung from the neck at the gallows. In the morning, Lily was awakened by Barry's cries of joy. She bolted upright in bed, looking around expecting something other than her husband glued to the computer monitor laughing and high-fiving the cat. I did it! Barry screamed and the cat ran off with its tail in a question mark. Lily crawled out of bed and put on her nightgown. She heard herself say it but didn't want to ask him. What did you do? knowing that was a mistake. I want a saxy, Lily shrugged. What the devil is a saxy? Barry tapped his forehead with his index finger and thought a moment. Well, he started, thought some more. It's a... God, Barry, don't strain yourself. 
<laughs> Lily. You don't even know what you bought, you idiot? Lily angrily sashed into the bathroom. I do too know what I bought, he called out to her. Barry looked at the computer screen. It read, GarageSale.com. Congratulations, you have won this item. Saxy, a subhuman that grants any number of wishes. It requires very little demand of you and with its power of wish fulfillment could change your life forever. Lily looked at Barry stone-faced. You are an idiot, Barry Hughes. She clicked off the screen for GarageSale.com and signed in to her email. Why would you do that? Barry was puzzled. We could use this. Barry, this kind of thing doesn't exist. Just like Ewoks, leprechauns, and unicorns. Unicorns did exist, Barry exerted. They died out with the dinosaurs. I saw their definition in the dictionary. Why did I marry you? Lily checked her email. Several from her mother she didn't wish to read and far too many Facebook comments on a picture she uploaded of the cat. Barry thought a moment, then he spurted out, Because you love me. That's why you married me. Lily scoffed. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. Might be because of your butt. Lily, I need some gas money. She sighed. Get my card, honey. She went back to answering the email to her mother. Try to have a nice day at work, okay? Barry placed his clip-on tie, made a sour face. Today is 10% off for senior citizens at the store. Those blue-haired old ladies creep me out when they get too fresh. Lily laughed. <laughs> That's what you get when you're cute and the assistant manager of a grocery store. Yeah, they sense my power. Barry leaned over Lily's shoulder and kissed her goodbye. I'll have dinner ready for you when you get home, she called out to him as he went out the front door of the apartment. Barry waved to her and closed the door. Barry came home about six that day. He managed to pass through the front door of his apartment and plopped down on his chair. Tired hands reached for the remote, but dropped it a few times. Retrieving the remote control the last time was when Barry noticed the old naked man lying on the couch. The old man was blind. His body no longer obeyed his brain's command to move. His hands and feet were drawn in from horrible arthritis. Breathing was very difficult for his inflamed lungs. Barry stared at the old man, which was lying on his back, breathing heavily. The old man sounded like a vacuum cleaner with a golf ball stuck in the hose. It didn't register to him who it was. He remembered that Lily said her father was dead, so that's not who it was. Ditto for his father. Was it the homeless guy from down the street that kept badgering Lily for cheese? Who was this old geezer, and why did he smell like a goat? Lily? Barry called to her. There was a rumbling from their bedroom, and she appeared in the doorway of the living room. Yes, dear? Lily said with a smile on her face. Barry hit a button on the remote, and the television turned on. Immediately, he began to channel surf, watching the screen as a visage of changing faces and body parts, along with different locations and products, appeared and disappeared. Barry never once took his eyes from the glowing box. Who is the old naked man on our couch? He said calmly. What old naked man, Barry, my love? Lily folded her arms across one another. The one right there. Barry pointed the remote to the old man who was now coughing and spitting something up, then swallowing it back in, repeating the process several times. That old naked man, Lily. Oh, yeah, him. Barry moved his eyes to meet Lily's cold gaze. Are you going to tell me who he is? It's your package, dummy. She walked back to the bedroom and slammed the door. Barry dropped the remote and jumped out of his chair with childish enthusiasm. He rushed to the old man and looked him over. You're kidding me. 
Barry cried out, laughing wildly. This is awesome! Fantastic! Have you tried him out yet? Barry noticed she wasn't in the living room anymore. He searched for the box the old man was shipped in. He found it behind the couch. Barry shrugged. Hmm, not as big as I would have thought for a man shipped in. He found a note handwritten. No refunds. Of course, Barry shook his head. Lily appeared again. Why did you do this? Because I always wanted someone to grant me wishes, Barry said, matter of fact. You used my credit card, Lily said. How else would I get this wish master? Barry grinned at her. Lily stepped forward and raised her fist to hit Barry. I wish I had a thousand dollars every time you did something stupid. As she said that, her fist popped Barry in the nose and several bills from the Treasury Department appeared in her balled-up hand. Barry fell on his backside hard. He realized his wife had just punched him out. Barry! Lily screamed, her voice cracking at the last syllable. Did you see what just happened? Barry was shocked. He felt the pain his bloodied, pulsating nose attacking every one of his senses. I saw my wife hit me, he said in that hurt little boy voice he uses when he's upset. My loving wife hit me with her fists. No! Money appeared out of thin air in my hand. Lily helped Barry to his feet. He ran for the bathroom. Oh my God! Lily was writhing in joy. I can't believe this is happening! Barry darted back in the living room, holding a towel to his nostril. You didn't have to hit me, he exclaimed. Sit down, honey. Lily took Barry by the arm and placed him in his chair. She cocked his head back and held the towel to his nose herself as she sat on the arm of the chair. I'm sorry, baby. I got carried away. You know how angry I get at the simplest things. I don't mean to hurt you. You know I never intentionally mean to hurt you. Barry thought a moment. He sighed. It's okay, I guess. Lily rubbed her hand on his shoulder. You're a real sport, Barry. He nodded. Yeah, too much of one. So you think the old man granted the wish? Lily shrugged. You said he was a... Saxy, Barry said. Right. Lily stood, touched her lips with the towel, and then threw it at Barry, hitting him in the chest. A saxy. There's no restrictions on how many wishes you can have? Yeah, Barry said with affirmation. That's what GarageSale.com said, he said. He began following Lily as she paced the room. No, she said. There's no way you can get all that without a catch. No way. Gotta be a catch somewhere. Lily stopped, turned to Barry. He lifted an eyebrow. Why can't we just enjoy the wishes and not worry about consequences that may not exist? Lily looked at Barry incredulously. He drew an air and held it, waiting for Lily to downsize him for the statement. Then she smiled shrugged her shoulders and laughed. Yeah, she said. Why not enjoy it? Yeah, Barry repeated her. Why not enjoy it? I wish I had the most expensive bottle of wine on the dining table, Lily stated. They walked into the dining room. There, the bottle sat, already uncorked. Lily and Barry burst into laughter at the same time. They hugged each other. Barry took her by the hand and placed her at the table. He kissed Lily softly. She turned red in the face and turned away from him as she always did after he kissed her like that. I wish a steak dinner and shrimp was on the table, Barry said. And they were not surprised when it appeared on the table. As they cut into their steak dinner, Lily looked into Barry's eyes and told him she loved him. Barry awoke in the morning in a frenzy. He stumbled out of bed, his vision severely diminished. He felt his way from the bedroom to the living room, shouting for Lily. In his trek was a lot of things they wished for and a lot of money laying around. TVs, stereos, different foods. A Cadillac outside parked where his van was. 
clothes from the best designers in the world, jewelry for him and Lily. Twenty miles away, a three-story mansion belonged to them as well. Barry crawled on his hands and knees, calling for Lily. He was stopped cold when he felt a man's leg. It was the old man, dressing in one of Barry's suits. He heard Lily moaning. She was lying on the couch, completely naked, because clothing hurt every part of her body. It was difficult for her to breathe. The air was difficult to catch, her lungs inflamed. Her tongue was ravaged with cancerous sores. Her hands and feet were drawn up from intense arthritis. The old man helped Barry up, hugged him as he spoke in broken English. Greed, he paused, laughed. <laughs> it destroys the body, eh? The old man left Barry standing there in almost complete darkness. Where did you go? Barry screamed over and over, weeping. Lily still moaned, tried very hard to put sentences together. Her broken body would not obey her brain's commands. GarageSale.com Two Saxies for Sale. Bid ends tomorrow, 11 p.m. Come the piggies. No, no longer do we serve crow or vulture. Only organic, fresh human. Fresh killing or grown in a test tube. Piggies is the best. Twisted Pulp Radio Hour, your host was Dr. Mary Von Rocket Sprocket, played by Lothar Tuppen. Your co-host was Miss Tiffany Teagarden, played by Jerry Ella. Episode written by Mark Slade. Theme music by Tim Slade. End music by Chauncey Hayworth. Produced by Mark Slade, Lothar Tuppen, and Chauncey Hayworth. Directed by Mark Slade.
You've been listening to community-supported KKRN 88.5 FM. We are supported by listeners like you and brought to you by volunteers from the community. Are you ready to support your local community radio? To become a listener supporter, go to our website, kkrn.org, and click on the Donate button or mail a check to P.O. Box 188, Montgomery Creek, California, 96065. You can call 530-337-1101 to volunteer at KKRN Community Radio or to learn more about us.